Our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 7, and it's verses 13 through 29. We're going to be reading the message translation today, so again, it might be a little bit different than what you've heard before, um, but again, that's the way I think the Spirit works to help us notice what God is saying. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life and to God is vigorous and requires total attention. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are they are out to rip you off some way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. Knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What's required is serious obedience, doing what my father wills. I can see it now. At the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, master, we preach the message. We bash the demons. Our super spiritual projects had everyone talking. And do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You are out of here. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. They're not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down and the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on a sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. When Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They'd never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything that he was saying, quite a contrast to their religion teachers. This was the best teaching that they ever heard. This is the word of the Lord. So let's take a look at it a little bit. The first thing that I want to do, we didn't get to this scripture last week and it wasn't on the screen, but I think it would be remiss of me to not address this scripture and that is Matthew seven twelve. Here is a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets and this is what you get. Now I'm reading this from the message translation. What is this? What did I just read? The golden rule. Thank you. So Hillel, who was a first century Jewish sage, tells this story of the golden rule. A Gentile demanded of Hillel, convert me on condition that you teach me the entire Torah while I am standing on one foot. Hillel responded, that which is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the entire Torah and the rest is interpretation. Go study. Amy Jill Levine says about this scripture. Actually, that's the wrong quote. Sorry, I'm just going to put that to the side. Because again, we are so messy. So I'm going to ask you some questions this morning in, the, in, the, uh, in this sermon. And I, I really want this to be communal. I really want us to get in here together uh, and how long this is depends on you because if you don't talk, I'm just going to stand up here. 
And everybody at home is going to go, what is happening? How do I want to be treated? What is not hateful to me? Isn't the golden rule another way of saying, love your neighbor? Isn't the golden rule just another way of saying, love your enemies? Matthew 5, 43, 47 says, you're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer, for then you are working out your own true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best. The sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone regardless, the good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, the supreme, the supreme religious challenge is to see God's image in one who is not in our image. People that do not treat us the way we want to be treated can all of a sudden become targets of our own derision and disdain and low-key hate. <laughs> we have to be careful. Let me say this. I've got an asterisk here because I want to make this clear. If there's abuse involved against you, that's an entirely different matter. We don't sweep that under the rug and ride off into the sunset saying we have forgiven them and it no longer matters. This is a whole other sermon for another day. But the golden rule, and here's why I get your input. What is something that you do for others that you would like done to you? This is fun. This is lighthearted. This is not serious, serious theological interpretation. Just fun. What is something that you do for others that you would like done to you? Verses 13 through 14 say, Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. In the NRSV, this will be a a translation that's a little bit more familiar to us probably. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy. That leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard, that leads to life. And there are few who find it. The traditional interpretation that I had handed down to me was this is about salvation and damnation. Anybody else? Yep. Who's in, who's out? You're in if you follow that narrow path, but you're not if you don't. And I think after studying the Sermon on the Mount like we have over these past few weeks, it's okay if you still see it that way because we welcome that generous orthodoxy. But can I just present to you that I don't see it that way anymore and I'm going to tell you why. Because the entire Sermon on the Mount is not about getting into heaven and avoiding hell. The entire Sermon on the Mount is about how we live our lives. So if that's the case, the narrow gate is the life that Jesus taught us to live. It's walking in the fruit of the Spirit, as Vicki said. We are to love people who don't like us. 
I mean, for shame. Come on. What's not to like? We are not off the hook if they need help and we can give it. Chapter 7 teaches us that we are supposed to treat others the way that we want to be treated. To live that kind of life, that's hard. And that's a narrow path. Jesus' audience in the Sermon on the Mount is not wretched unbelievers. Jesus' audience are his people. They're his followers. They're already in. They're good. We're not talking about heaven or hell here. He's talking about a way to live your life. That's a narrow way. Jesus was talking to people who were already on the narrow path. He was telling them that what I'm teaching you in this Sermon on the Mount and the rest of his teachings combined is hard, is sacrificial, it's head-scratching, dog-eat-dog culture around you to a dog-eat-dog culture around you. They don't understand this. Not even our fellow believers that want to follow a different path that doesn't involve the fruit of the Spirit. But it is the path that gives us life and more abundant life. There is freedom in forgiving people. There is freedom in keeping our oaths. There is freedom in remaining faithful to our spouse. There is freedom in not seeking vengeance. There is freedom in loving others the way that you want to be loved. Those are the precepts Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He says this is the narrow path. Is it hard? Oh yeah, it's hard. Some of us try to walk this narrow path and we wind up leaving it. Because we did not find abundant life living this way. We had to take vengeance on someone. We needed to have the affair. We needed to hold on to resentments and grudges. And we leave the path. I certainly have. Many leave the narrow path because of the promises of power, money, a platform, the approval of others, the need for control, a desire to look better than what we really are. I promote this podcast all the time, and I know you're so sick of me talking about it. Please listen to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I'm just telling you, it's worth your time. A case study in that desire for power, control, and the end results are disastrous. Many leave this narrow path because they would rather worship at the altar of the Democratic or Republican Party rather than remembering Jesus never taught us that the empires of the world should be his followers. He called us to follow him. It's not about making us a Christian nation. It's about making me more Christian. Here's the thing. Let Caesar be Caesar. Call out the injustices. We do have a responsibility to call out injustice. We do have a responsibility to call out inequality and discrimination. But we have forgotten that Jesus is our Lord and not America. Mark Iaconale talks about the rule of love, and this is how he describes this rule. Anything that leaves you more fearful, more isolated, more disconnected from people, 
more full of judgment or self-hatred is not of God, and it does not follow the rule of love, and you should stop doing it. The narrow gate is where an authentic community is. We do this narrow stuff together. This is not a one-man show. This is not a trick pony up here. We do this together. That's where we find wholeness and healing and light for ourselves, walking that narrow path that Jesus taught us to walk in community. Not one disciple went off on their own. They always went together. And we need to be together too. My question for us this morning is, and I'm not going to ask you to answer these out loud, introspection. And I had to do this too. And I hope it's a process that I always do. But the question is, am I on this narrow path? I love what you said, Jennifer. I'm trying. Can you see that I'm trying? I'm trying. Y'all, I don't get that narrow path right. I I, I guarantee you in a couple of hours, Terry, my husband's going to make me mad about something and I'm not going to respond correctly in a narrow path kind of way. We don't get it right all the time. But we're trying. We're trying. Are there people on this path, this narrow path with me, who are limping? This is hard. And maybe we have a measure of growth and healing, and we are just, okay, we can do this. right. And you look back and you see somebody, man, they're barely hanging on. Two things. Guys, we have to look out to see who's limping. Who's having a hard time? We cannot close our... How do we know that? In community. Are there path, are there people on this path with me who have sprained an ankle or even broken their ankle? This is another reason why community is important. Trying to walk that narrow path is hard. People hurt us, they betray us, they are jerks. <laughs> Choosing to walk toward forgiveness and healing is hard, and we need each other in those times. Who behind you or beside you needs encouragement to walk in the rule of love? Who needs encouragement to be walking in the fruit of the Spirit? We need each other to walk this narrow path. Have I or someone else left the narrow path? It's not worth it. I don't want to do it anymore. As long as we are still breathing, we have opportunity to repent and get back on it. The word repent, and I think Pastor Casey talked a little bit about it last week, means to changing, change your mind. And it's a Greek word that's metaoneo. So meta, what are you hearing when I say that? What word are you hearing? English word, meta. Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. We change. We change our mind. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's this metaoneo, this metamorphosis. To repent is to renew your mind. This broad path that I'm walking on is not doing me any favors. I'm hurting people I love. I'm hurting myself. Repent. 
This narrow path gives us life, peace that passes all understanding, and our minds need to be renewed. And how do we make that happen? Again, by being in community. When someone strays from the narrow path, we go get them. What did Jesus do with all the sheep? There's one missing, right? We go get them. We become a community to a person. We become a safe space. Years and years and years ago, in my early 20s, I was neck deep in a very heinous, horrible, sinful, for lack of better word, I know that's evangelical, but it's the language that I have, time that I lived in. But there was a woman that I worked with. She was around my same age, and her husband was a Pentecostal preacher. And she just kind of took me under her wing. She knew all the junk I was in. Oh, she knew. She never once told me, you're so bad for doing that. She was just my friend. She invited me to church with her, and I'm like, I can't go in the doors of a church right now. Didn't bother her at all. Didn't bother her at all. She listened to me as I was processing this pit of mud I was in, and she just loved me. She just liked me. I wasn't a project for her to change. She wasn't trying to win me over to the Lord. She was just my friend. We should always be a people who call ourselves and others to walk in the fruit of the Spirit, to encourage one another. Verses 15 through 20, be wary of false preachers who smile a lot. I know you probably have someone in mind when we read that scripture. I'm not going to call that person's name out loud, but he's on TV. Dripping with practice sincerity. Chances are they are up to rip, out to rip you off in some way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. I'm going to do something a little bit different since we're talking about preachers right now that I felt like the Lord impressed on me to do, and I don't want to do this. Usually for me, that means that's God telling me to do it. I have in bold letters and in all caps, sit down. Because what I'm about to teach to you applies to me. And I'm not any better than anybody else. So I'm going to sit. Let's talk about false preachers and teachers. I would dare say if you have been attending Imago at least three or four times, you're not the kind of people that are looking for a preacher in $2,000 sneakers. These are not sneakers. They're pretty, they are sneakers, but they're banged up. I think I paid 50 bucks for them. You're not looking for a polished, thoughtfully curated social media platform in your pastor or who is besties with Justin Bieber. And if you are, we ain't the one. I should have an amen on that. We are not polished. <laughs> yes, we are messy. 
We are so messy. But detecting a false teacher can take time. They're not dumb. They are practiced manipulators, and many of us get duped by them. And we are devastated when we find out who they really are. But Jesus tells us that we can spot a false teacher by examining the fruit of their ministry, their labor, their lives. And just so we're clear, the word fruit here is not about converts and baptisms and people with no names. Fruit is not really great church attendance or followers, but fruit is about people. We have to take a hard look, my friends, at our pastors and our leaders and our teachers. What is their fruit? What is my fruit? Who is walking that narrow path because a teacher pastor encouraged them to? Who is living out the Sermon on the Mount? Who is walking in the fruit of the Spirit? Is this teacher that we are following, are they kind, gentle, forgiving, merciful, compassionate, gracious, loving, peaceful, joyful, and patient? I'm just going to say to you right here and now, I'm not all of those things. On any given day, I fail at all of them. But I'm trying Are the people around this teacher, this preacher, this pastor, are they kinder, gentler, forgiving, merciful, compassionate, gracious, loving, peaceful, joyful, and patient? Are they? That's the fruit. Is the teacher a person of self-control if we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit? And here's the thing, I've always considered self-control not eating a second piece of cheesecake. And um, yeah, that's probably not a good idea, but sometimes you need two pieces of cheesecake. Can I get an amen? Amen. But that's not what self-control means here. I love the way Eugene Peterson says it in the message. Not needing to force our way in life. Able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. The self-control to not be pushy to get my way. And make no mistake, I'm stubborn. I'm stubborn and I like my way. (laughs) That was rude. My husband just said, Amen. We will certainly be having conversation this afternoon that probably I won't be that nice. There are things that I want to do at Imago, but the leadership team sometimes are just like, yeah, that's not a good thing right now. It's not a good time. And I'm like, yeah, inside. I don't do that to them because they're great to work with and they pretty much like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go for it. But every now and then, yeah, maybe, mm, not, not right this second. And inside I'm like, but I heard from God. How dare you? Guys, that's not, what, that's not the way that works. It's just not. We don't force our way. We don't. The fruit is the people. The fruit are the people in their lives that we have impacted. 
If someone who is a teacher, preacher, pastor helps others see how so very loved they are, enables to see the image of God in others, and creates a more expansive and kind and loving picture of God, that is fruit. That is fruit. I, a few years ago, I, um, I was um, living in Huntsville and um, just struggling with life in general. My children were smaller. My husband at the time was in ministry, and it was just a hard life and had a hard time making ends meet, et cetera. The whole thing, when your kids are younger, you know this story. You know how that goes. And I was getting ready for work one day. And I'm about to share a story with you that I don't really, t- I don't know that I've ever shared it with a public group of people, but I might have when I interviewed. I don't remember. Vicki will tell me if I did, because you will remember. It's a little hooey. It's a little like, ooh, out there. So I, that's why I don't share it that much, because I, I get it. I get it. But it's my story, and it happened to me. I was getting ready for work one morning. And um, I was in my closet, and I felt this, these words in my spirit. And they were, you make me happy. I looked around the bedroom. I thought my husband had walked back in the room, and he was downstairs. I was all by myself. I remember sitting down on my bed and going, what was that? Am I, what's happening? Am I, is this a nervous breakdown? I'm confused. You make me happy. Y'all, I, I never thought until that moment that I needed to know that God was happy with me. But oh my heavens, did I need to know that. Because I wasn't even willing to examine that, examine that like that. And I want to share with you this morning. You make God happy. You really do. He gets a kick out of us, y'all. We make God laugh. He delights in us. When we delight over our children and our nieces and our nephews, they just make us happy, right? We don't even have to do anything with them, just watching them play. They make us happy. We make God happy. Look at the fruit. But even for the false teacher, there's still hope and good news. And this is what I love because we talked about how they're just gone. They're just wiped off the planet and it's just over with and you're just burned up and by. That's not the whole of scripture about a false teacher. In Luke 13, 6 through 9, we read, Jesus told this parable. A man owned a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came looking for the fruit on it and found none. He said to his gardener, Look, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree for the past three years, and I've never found any. Cut it down. Why should it continue depleting the soil's nutrients? The gardener responded, 
Lord, give it one more year and I will dig around it and I will give it fertilizer and maybe it will produce fruit next year. If not, then you can cut it down. Thank God for second chances. We don't get thrown out with the trash. We don't. We get second chances. My uh, professor and pastor from back home, Robbie, and you will meet him in October. I'm so excited. He's going to come and do a deconstruction retreat for us and kind of work through some of those things. I'm excited, and he'll be preaching that Sunday. When I first visited his church, he was my professor in school. And as an aside, he said he was also a pastor of a Baptist church. And I was like, because he did not look like a pastor of a Baptist church. He didn't look hippie-ish or anything. He just, he just, he was just like really, I don't know how to describe it, but I didn't believe it. So I go and ask him. He's like, yeah, I do. I pastor a Baptist church. I was like, not a Southern Baptist church, based on what he was teaching in the class. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We're, we're a cooperative Baptist church. So we explain that. So me and my family went to his church the first Sunday. This would have been in 2012. And he, his entire message just oozed love and grace. He would say, all is grace. All is grace. I've never, I had never heard that from a pastor in a pulpit. And it was just a healing balm to my soul. All is grace. All is grace. He taught with that kindness and gentleness. He didn't need to yell. He didn't need a cool platform. He didn't need $2,000 sneakers. He didn't need those things. He just embodied the fruit of the Spirit. In 2015, when uh, Oberfell was uh, passed and we made same-sex marriage the law of the land, thank God, he decided to do a sermon around it. I had a child at the time. Still, this child is still gay, but at the time, it was just kind of a new thing for me as a fa- as our, in our family. And I remember him telling me, your kid is the reason I will fight for this because I love your kid. Now, let me tell you something. This church was very conservative. It was predominantly conservative with a small pocket of more moderate to progressive thinking. And he preached the sermon on two chairs, on two chairs. And he looked at that congregation and he said, these verses about homosexuality do not mean what you think they mean. There's more to it than that. Whatever we've been taught, there's other ways to look at this. And it was a fire and brimstone kind of sermon. I'd never heard him preach like that before. That he was fighting for the people on this planet that are gay in a very conservative Alabama town. We paid a price for it. We lost about 100 people. He's still known as 
the Baptist pastor who thinks being gay is okay. <laughs> but I'll never forget, I'm sitting toward the front. I didn't know he, I didn't know he was going to go there, and he's talking about this whole thing. And I look up in the balcony because my gay child is right above me, and this gay child didn't know we were going there either. And this child was leaned up on the railing like this with tears rolling down his face because his pastor said, I love you just like you are. You don't need to change a thing because it's all grace. It's all grace. I need to hear that. You need to hear that.